oh, who am I to receive the gift of being able to present God's word? I'm like a piece of grass that is nice and green one day and burnt up the next. But here I am because of God's goodness, because of his word, because of his power. For the gospel is the power of God. If you would please turn to the book of James. We're we're in... (laughs) I didn't think I was that scary. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) We're in James chapter 2 today. Today we're going to talk about how real faith works. No. No, strike that. We're going to talk about how real faith works. A person may very well read the, the heading of this passage in your Bible, because most of our Bibles have those, those nice little helpful headings, and uh, see that it says there, I don't know what your version says, mine says, faith and deeds. And you might just skim over the whole thing thinking to yourself, yeah, I get it, faith is important, we should do good works, yada, 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 let's keep moving. Um, and I'm really afraid that such a cursory reading might, might cause you to miss some of the gems in this mine. Some pretty hard-hitting truth. And beautiful, beautiful things that we can glean from this passage. We're going to read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself If it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. When you hear me refer to a a hard-hitting 
passage. Uh, if, if I were you and I'm sitting there, I'm looking for it as we're reading. I'm like, well, which one is he talking about? Like, is there something secret in there? Like, I'm going to find it. We'll find it together. But it might not be the one that you thought. It's going to be so good when we get there. And a little bit scary. He begins in verses 14 to 17 by making what we can call a rhetorical argument. He asks three rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is great because you already know the answer. So if you know the answer, please say it out loud as we get to that point. So this kind of interaction thing, okay? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds? What's the implied answer? It's no good at all, right? We know this. And then another question. Can such a faith save him? We know the implied answer. We may not understand why he's saying it. We know the implied answer. Can such a faith save him? No. No! No. But is this just an intellectual exercise? Is it a, just a cerebral argument to think through so that we can understand and then go about our lives? No. You guys, this is life or death. That's not an exaggeration. It is life or death. And I don't want us to get turned away from the path of truth into thinking that this argument is some sort of tool that you can use to establish who around me is in or out. Well, Joe... Mm, man, I see the faith, but you got to work on the deeds, buddy. You better get, you know, mm-hmm. step it up a little bit, shift up, you know. Susie, Susie, man, she's doing great. Look at Susie. Just, we should put a big picture of her up in the church. No, it's not about that. It's a continuation of the mirror metaphor that we looked at several weeks ago. And who was that for? Was it for me to look at you? No, it was for me. And each one of us should say, that's for me. It's for me. Because when I look into the perfect word that gives freedom, the perfect law that gives freedom, I learn from that. And then that great statement that Pastor Mitch made, that's why when we go through those trials, we want to come out better, not bitter. It's, it's when we're interacting with God's word and considering its power in our lives. It's beneficial for self-reflection. The salvation mentioned here in verse 14 when it says, can such a faith save him, has to do with eschatology. That's a $10,000 word for later stuff. End times. It's not the thing that we were talking about a second ago to determine, have you been saved yet? Or especially not for me to say, let's see, are you saved? Are you saved? Like, we don't do that. That's not what it's for. If we look at um, 2 Corinthians 5, it, um, go there real quick, 2 Corinthians 5. We can see that the future stuff, the later stuff, is a big deal. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And a lot of us love the beginning of, of that chapter in Romans 12. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Well, didn't you say there's no condemnation? How can we talk about judgment now? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is judgment. Each of us is going to face the Lord one day. And this argument takes us back once again to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, genuine saving faith must include trusting Christ as Savior and following Christ as Lord. Can we just like say that together? Genuine saving faith must include both trusting Christ as Savior and following Christ as Lord. And so he's starting to to circle back around to his initial question. He says it again at the end of 16. What good is it? And again, the answer is, well, it's no good at all. And he, he doesn't just say it's no good at all. He goes on to say in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What's dead faith? It's like a bottomless bucket without any sides. It's, it's nothing. It doesn't exist. Going on to uh, verse 18. <clears throat> We're gonna, it's going to get spicier, guys. We have an anticipated objection and its answer. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. What does James mean, deeds? He, he consistently throughout the book refers to deeds as actions that are the outflow of genuine faith. Easy for me to say. These actions authenticate a person's faith. Because real faith works always, every time. When a living faith is present in the life of a person, fruit will be produced. And we want to make sure here that that we're not getting up here together, looking around the circle and saying, so go try harder. That is, it's not an honor-shame situation. It's not about that. It's more like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, where a person is trusted. They put the full weight of their trust in the Lord, and what happens? Life happens. Life happens, and the Spirit is working, and all of a sudden, what starts coming out is love and actions of love and joy in the midst of trials, and peace that passes understanding, and it goes on and on. But any other kind of faith that's not paired with actions is an imposter. It's fraudulent. It is no faith at all. And like the author says, it's dead. Verse 19. Oh, I didn't finish reading. Oh, did I finish reading 18? Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. 
because it's sort of funny because he says, show me your faith without deeds. Well, you can try, but like we just said, it doesn't exist. You believe that there is one God. Verse 19. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We need to stop here and be reminded that James's audience, remember from the beginning of chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to who? Do you remember? The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings, right? When he says, you believe that there is one God, good. Everybody that was reading this letter knew exactly what he was referring to. We are separated from Jewish tradition to some degree. And so sometimes when we read this, it's just like, you believe there's God. That is not what he was pointing to. When he said, you believe that there is one God, what they understood that to be a reference to was to the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that comes right out of the Bible. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll look at it here in a second. So, so go there, Deuteronomy 6, but before we read it, I want to introduce the idea of the Shema. It's, it's, a, it's a passage here in Moses' sermon to Israel where he's giving them the law, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema to this day among Jewish households is the centerpiece of daily prayer, morning and evening. It's considered by some to be the most essential prayer in all of Judaism, an affirmation of God's singularity, his kingship. Its daily recitation is regarded by traditionally observant Jews as a biblical commandment. And we'll see why in a sec, because we're going to read it. It literally says that. The first verse of the Shema from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy um, sounds like this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Did you recognize any words there? Shema Yisrael, Israel. Adonai. We've heard the word Adonai probably in praise songs that we heard on the radio growing up. But we know that's the Lord. The Shema is recited daily. It's recited in the climactic moments of the final prayer of Yom Kippur, which is in Judaism the, the holiest day. And traditionally, in the last words before you die. If you think about it, you say it. Now, I don't know that every person has that opportunity, but, but that's how big of a deal this is. And it's recited with the hand over the eyes. It, it, there's this tremendous amount of reverence for this passage. Um, I have to tell you a story. And before I tell it, I need to say something to my dad. Dad, if you're watching, <laughs> I tell this story to honor you and not to embarrass you. De veras, papi, te quiero mucho. Un abrazo. My dad is a missionary. He served since the early 60s in Latin America, writing scripture songs, um, teaching people how to minister with music, and it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's germane to this conversation. He never curses. Ever. 
And he and my mom have been through some extremely difficult situations. They have been taken in a sense of being robbed by the police hundreds of times um, in Latin America because it's so corrupt. They've been in situations where, um, especially in the late 70s, where there was guerrilla warfare in the northern part of Guatemala. It was super dangerous. And they've been in situations where they were taken by guerrillas by force with machine guns. They've been in some bad situations. And never have I ever heard my dad curse. Until one day. And it was my fault. I brought this to be. I was a high schooler. And some of you are already like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. <laughs> oh, man. And I'm going to tell you, I don't actually remember what I did to cause this to happen because of the trauma of what came after. I did something bad. I was being extremely disrespectful and mouthy and lippy with my dad. And he was reading me the riot act. And he was so frustrated that he said, enough of this bullshit. And he finished the word. <laughs> and it shocked me to my core. I was immediately little. And just like, it just ripped me up. Because that had never happened before. Ever. And what it did was it immediately showed me what I had done was exactly the word that he had used. My behavior, my deeds, my actions leading up to that moment were like smelly, rotten crap that he wanted nothing to do with. And he was commanding me in that moment to be done with it. He had enough. And whether you think his word was literal, he probably meant it literally. Whether you think his word was of impact, yes it was, all of those things. There was a huge impact in my heart at that moment. And that is a little bit what James is doing here. Because he's making an association that is incredible. It hurt for them to see this written. I guarantee you they couldn't believe what he just said. How could you say that, make an association between the Shema, which we revere because it's about the Lord Almighty, how could you do that, make an association with that, and the thing that we would want to disassociate with ourselves so much, the demons and the enemy himself, how could you do that? for the same reason my dad did in that moment. You need to know that to think that you can just have something up here and have this faith or make these statements of be warm and well fed and not do anything from that faith. No! Because think of the demons. Do they have faith? You bet your butterball they do. 
Think about it. Any, anytime we see in the scripture stories where Jesus speaks to a demon, the response of the demon, I know who you are. What do you want with me? I know who you are, the Holy One or the Son of God. What are you going to do with me? Send me out. Do something like There's this rage and there's abject horror at being face-to-face with who they knew was the Messiah, God himself. You see, they do have faith here. Furthermore, they know the scripture. They know what is coming. They know the judgment that they face. And they hate it. And they will do everything to destroy it and destroy you. But that faith that they have doesn't translate the way that it should for all of us. That's why James says, you foolish man. And he does not use that word like, you dork. No, he means it the way that Proverbs means it. You foolish man. And who's he talking about? It's reflecting right back to verse 18. The guy that said, well, you, you have faith and I have deeds. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And parenthetically, I'm not going to give it to you. What he's going to do is something even better in the next verses. 21 through 24. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Oh, that's uncomfortable. A lot of us aren't comfortable with that statement. He was justified by what he does and not by faith alone. This brings, this is where it gets spicy, y'all. Um, this brings to our attention an apparent contradiction between the teaching of the Apostle Paul and the teaching here of James. To put it succinctly, Paul's position oversimplified. Salvation by grace through faith alone. You may have actually said those words before. Don't feel bad. It's okay. James's position oversimplified. Salvation comes by faith plus works. But you guys, what happens when we oversimplify? <laughs> to some degree, we're leaving out something really important. We lose clarity, meaning, and actually end up in some pretty hot hermeneutical water. Hermeneutics is like the interpretation of Scripture, right? 
So where do people get this idea? Galatians chapter 2. You can look it up if you want. I'm just going to read it. We, being the Jews, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So some people have read that, and then they read James, and they're like, this does not work. I love how Dr. Ralph Martin put it. He wrote um, a great commentary on the book of James. He says, the stances of Paul and James are not salvation by faith without works versus salvation by faith plus works, respectively. Rather, Paul denies the need for pre-conversion works, and James emphasizes the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. To interpret all the writings of Paul to mean that works are unimportant would be to miss some critical truths that he taught. After his beautiful statement in Ephesians 2 about you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, right? It's not by works, lest any man should boast. But he didn't stop there. Because he came, he continued, and he said, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. These guys don't disagree. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he said, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul and James agree, no works can earn our salvation. And I think James would say that the works of, that he's referring to are not salvific, but evidential. They're not what earn us salvation, because we know, we have been taught from the scripture, you can't do that. You can't earn your salvation. And I think Paul would absolutely agree. The apostle and the pastor. Verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's amazing how much honor God decided to give to this woman, this dear woman, whose occupation we all are familiar with. And we don't look favorably on it. And neither does the Lord. But that's not the point here. The point is that, well, let's read it. Joshua chapter 2. So Joshua is getting ready to cross the river with the people of Israel. He secretly sends two spies. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they're there, and they're about to get found out. The king of Jericho was aware of this. He was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So he sent this message to Rahab. So he knows where they went. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Let's fast forward to verse 10. This is Rahab. 
or eight, verse eight. Let's start at verse eight. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That is a statement of faith. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And the evidence of that faith is happening right right now in that situation. She is showing the evidence of her faith by committing treason. By hiding these men, she sent them upstairs to hide under the flax sheaves. And then the guys came to her house and they said, we're coming in, we're getting these people out. And what did she do? She delivers an Oscar-worthy performance. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the guys that came, they did. They were here. And I'm not going to do it justice, but Rahab was amazing. Um, they were here. They left on that road. So, like, she gives them all these instructions and all this blah, 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 blah. It was incredible. And her very life was at stake. That is faith working itself out. Because of what she knew about God, and because she believed in God, that he was the God Almighty, God in heaven above and on the earth below, she acted so courageously. So what do we do with this? To say the least, don't Leave it on the page. Right? Because if we leave, and, and we just we literally leave, and we leave this on the page, but not living it out in our lives, we have done the very thing that it's warning us not to do. We have looked in the mirror and immediately forgotten what, it, what we looked like. Right? So, well, what sorts of deeds? Wait a minute. Pastor, are you literally going to say everything that a person could do out of faith? No. But I'll go over a few of them. <laughs> because when, when a person acts out of faith or prompted by faith, the power and the purpose of God is at work. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And sometimes these acts of faith are, are impressive. You look at, at the example of Abraham. I considered bringing my hunting knife and holding it up like he had the knife with him and his act of sacrifice was very real. He had raised the knife and his intention was to plunge it into his son. Because God had said, go up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. And it wasn't until he raised it up with the intention of coming down that God stopped him. So it wasn't just, ah, I brought a knife, but then we're going to have a prayer service and everything's going to be fine. 
Everything was not going to be fine. He, this act of faith was incredibly courageous. It was very real faith. Uh, he wasn't just doing something nice because he thought it would be a good fit for him and his schedule. If that stings, the Lord bless you. Rahab, when she acted in faith, acted in tremendous courage and faith, and her life was at stake. Think of Daniel, his friends telling the king that even if God doesn't save us from this fire of the furnace, we're still not going to bow down to that image. They didn't, they didn't know the verses that came after that passage. It hadn't been written yet. They didn't know that there was going to be a fourth person in the fire, that they were going to walk out and not even be singed. They didn't know. All they knew was the furnace had been heated seven times hotter than ever before, and it was for them to be cooked in. And they said, even if God doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down to that image. Other times, the acts of faith are unnoticeable. A mother praying for the salvation of her son in the privacy of her room. A CV high schooler praying for his meal in the cafeteria. A wife at the end of a long day responding to her husband with graciousness, with kindness, even though she has vacuumed the hallway 15 times and she's been homeschooling the kids all day, and she is tired. So I feel like there are <clears throat> three kind of categories of deeds, and these are not scriptural, okay? So if you feel like they're meaningful to you, awesome. If you don't like them, no problem. But we've got what we would call like devotional deeds, things like prayer, regular prayer, Scripture reading, memory, study, meditation on God's word, worship. These are the sorts of actions that charge up the batteries of my faith, resulting in energy and power to accomplish the deeds that are the natural outflow of real living faith. Picture Moses' time with God um, because it's such a great visual when Moses went up on the mountain, spent time with God, he came back changed. And visibly so. Like, I wish I could see that. I got to see that on a DVD someday. Please, Lord. To see that when he came back from the mountain, he was radiant because of his time with God. Time with God changes us. These actions, these devotional deeds, poor knowledge understanding and wisdom into us. And that helps us avoid confusion. They help us be able to operate in and in, in respond to the world around us with God's love and in God's power. There are moral deeds. This is just about doing what is right when it comes to our thoughts, our speech, our behavior. It's like what um, is said in Philippi, uh, Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. But sometimes we forget the next part that says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So it's not just about try to think of nice things, okay? That's not it. Think of what is pure, what is lovely, what's worthy of praise, and think about those things. And then put them into practice. Walk in them. And again, Rahab's example is so perfect here because she heard of the God of Israel and she believed in him and she acted with tremendous courage in hiding those spies. Sometimes I feel like we think about, um, we look at other people who seem to be very faithful and who seem to act on those things and we think, well, it's just like natural for them. Super organic. They just kind of blossom into being. I think that would be error. <laughs> it, it might act, cause us to think that faith has to involve some sort of like mysticism or something. Some of these deeds of faith feel like work. Some of them are born out of daily discipline. But the presence of effort and intentionality doesn't negate their legitimacy. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote, we've already said it this morning, but 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. I think the King James says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So much! That's what we're about. To the Colossian church, Paul wrote, bear with each other. You guys, we've just come out of a year and a half of learning how hard that is. Right? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. That's a grind. You guys are hard to live with. I am hard to live with. I'm that guy so many times. Both of the examples we had of Abraham and Rahab required great faith. Tremendous sacrifice. It was tough. The third category I would call ministry deeds. And this comes from the scripture that says each one should use whatever gift he has to serve others. If you are in worship team ministry at Berean, you have heard me say that multiple times. <laughs> That's a big deal for me. Not just because I, I need to find people that are skilled in these areas of worship arts ministry, but because the reason we do it is to serve others few examples. This guy, Phil, and his wife, Arlene, they had met in college, and 
uh, in symphony orchestra, got married, and decided that God was calling them to go to a different country whose language they did not speak to do who knows what, but something with music. 50 years later, <laughs> I mean, they served for 50 years and so with, to, with the gifts that God had given them to build up and equip people for the service. That's my parents. Or my friend Linda, choosing to serve running the confidence monitor in a ministry that is invisible. But what she does, even though the process is very straightforward, enables all of us up here to do what we do. There was a season where Kenny, who was probably 12, and his friend AJ, I think this was AJ's idea actually, they um, on Saturdays would really, really early go over downtown to a cup of cool water and help feeding the hungry. You probably never knew that. It's okay. That was kind of important to us actually because they were serving out of faith. They were serving people who needed it as a service to God. You could be a coach for upward flag football. You could be a person, and then that can be a step of faith, especially if you don't know football. To step into that role and say, God, I don't know how you will use me, but I want to be the guy that every week tells these kids, Jesus loves you, and you can trust the Bible. And it turns out, truth is knowable. And this is it in God's word. Let's go play football. Yeah! You could be a treasurer at church doing something that this man could never do because that's not the gift that God gave me, right? You would be unseen but infinitely appreciated and profoundly necessary. You could lead a Bible study. That's a step of faith. Because I think most of us who have been involved in a Bible study, especially if you've led one, you know that at the beginning of when you stepped into doing that, you were like, God, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I, I'm not equipped for this. I'm not sure, like, what do I even say? But that's the whole point of a step of faith is we're relying on God's leadership. We're relying on his wisdom that he will give you the words to say and knowing that if you get to that Bible study and somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to just say I don't know <laughs> I don't know that's a good question let's figure it out together that kind of conversation actually will establish your credibility because they knew that you didn't know everything before they even got to Bible study but it's fun to dig in the word together and to learn it. So step out in faith. You could look for opportunities to be an ambassador for God. And I love the way Pastor Mike always put this, in your walking around life. Like the scripture says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. 
and do it with gentleness and respect. That doesn't mean every man and woman should be ready to be up here giving a sermon every Sunday. That's not what that means. No, it's about your walking around life. When you're sitting there chatting with a barista, give an answer for the hope that you have. Be ready to talk about the joy that God has given you and the blessing it is to be forgiven, for goodness sake. The key here is that whatever you do needs to be the outflow of faith in Jesus Christ. As we walk with the Spirit daily, we more and more resemble the character and attributes of God. Who is love itself. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He is the friend of sinners, the courageous advocate of the disenfranchised, the man who was kind and welcoming to children who were squirrely and loud, the Jew who would dare sit next to a Samaritan woman and talk to her in truth and in love. The more we get to know God the Father, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the deeper we realize we can't reach such heights of moral uprightness in our own power or through our own volition. It has to be God working in us and through us. This is how we become lights shining brightly in this dark place. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Hallelujah. And we must follow Him as Lord. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this moment that we can spend looking into the perfect law that gives freedom. It's amazing what You have written here, Lord, that You inspired a man to pen these words and remind us of these truths that faith without deeds doesn't exist they have to go together Lord we love praising you as our savior you are almighty you are the creator you are the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and then you took your place at the right hand of the most high We love you for that, Lord. I pray that you would remind us to act in love. That that faith that we have would be more than just intellectual, Lord. But that you would give us opportunities and remind us to walk it out. To take it away from the page and put shoe leather to it, Lord. We honor you, our Savior, today. God Almighty. We love your mercy, Lord. And it's a pleasure to learn from you this day, to be fed by the bread of life, to be nourished and built up. And we praise you 
In Jesus' name, amen.